Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Emma Ajimang, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Hannah Goldsmith, founder of independent financial advisor Goldsmith Financial Solutions. If you're listening to this podcast, it's likely you're an enthusiastic investor or planning to become one. However, investing is no simple process. After you've selected your investments, which can be a fairly difficult business, you need to stay disciplined through rising and falling markets. Hannah, you've recently written a paper on this. Why is it important that investors stay disciplined? Um, Well, most investors I meet focus on short-term returns. And to me, it's about compounding profit, which, like time, cannot be recovered. Therefore, if we sort of use the weight loss analogy... If we have a target weight um, fund value, we have to stay focused on that plan to get there. If we sort of come off the wagon, perhaps a glass of wine at the weekends, it takes us longer and longer to reach our targets. So therefore, staying focused, staying disciplined to our plan, to me, is extremely important for investors. Okay. Now, what would be the main reasons why, you know, investors fail to remain disciplined and end up losing money? Well, I'm afraid that's a mixture of human nature and sometimes bad media, bad news sells, and mixing that with human capacity for loss, um, I think it's a a mixture of if I'm going to lose something, I need to perhaps sell, make bad decisions, try and protect what I have. Um, I think the media is a very powerful influence and humans are fearful of losing something, so therefore it's a case of... um, perhaps only listening and sticking to your actual plan itself. Okay. Now, I think, as you um, hinted, a lot of it comes down to bad buying and selling decisions, which basically, I suppose, is people trying to time the market. Now, why isn't it a good idea to try and time the market? Well, there's actually about 98 million trades a day done, um, accounting for about $306 in volume. Um, my research suggests that currently with new technologies, between 29 to 39% of all trades are now activated by high-frequency trading algorithms. Um, how a human being keeps up with this, I've got no idea in this new world. So technology has changed our industry completely. I think by the time data actually gets through to retail individuals, it's old data. Uh, and therefore trying to determine whether it's a good time to go in or not, um, I think investors may have missed the boat. Okay. Now, what can people um, do to try and prevent themselves from making these mistakes, and what can they do instead? Well, I think you've actually got to accept at some point of your investment journey you're actually going to lose some money, Um, and it's right at the beginning. It's not about how much you're necessarily going to make. It's how much you can afford to lose without it impacting your life. Therefore, capacity for loss is just as important as investment risk. Um, The trouble is, if you don't invest, you're guaranteed to lose money because your money in a bank is going to be lost through inflation. Um, Therefore, uh, history suggests that by investing um, for the longer term to hit your plan, you're going to be rewarded over time. Another thing that cuts into people's um, investment returns is costs. Why why is it important to keep costs down? Now you've got me on my big subject. (laughs) If investors aren't angry after RDR, they're not paying attention to costs of their investments. 
the industry is paying lip service by providing costs. But in a positive market, this, this, I suppose the costs can be justified. The problem is investors have no idea of the compound impact these fees have on their long-term wealth. Um, and what we should really be asking um, investors is, A, why do you invest? Well, it's probably because they want to maximise their wealth. Um, and therefore, um, who do they trust? Who's taking them to market in the most tax-efficient and cost-efficient way? The market costs, on average, uh, around about 2 to 2.5% in industry fees. Uh, based on a 5% return over 25 years at 2.5%, the industry takes more in money than the investor makes in profit, even though t they take all the capital risk. Therefore, costs are absolutely imperative and investors are unaware of the impact these costs have on their long-term wealth. What can investors do to try and keep costs down? Well, investors now with the new technologies have full access to global markets. Um, in the total industry cost of maximum of 1.1%, that's how we've uh, managed to look at it. The difference between 1.1% and 2.5% in market returns is absolutely substantial. Um, I would therefore be looking at keeping my costs in total, industry costs, to about 1.1% max. Okay, and um, what sort of funds should they turn to to do this? Well, again, this comes down to your philosophy of investing. Um, in what I call the traditional financial services world, uh, people are stock pickers. They enjoy picking stocks. Um, but I now call this soap on a rope. The more people that touch your money the more it's going to cost you, the less you're going to get back. So there are numerous funds available where you can buy global markets, uh, you can buy tracker funds, you can buy active uh, funds that are more buy and hold. Um, and all this is inclusive for the 1.1%, but you can actually hold in the region of 20,000 stocks globally for that 1.1. Okay, now with tracker funds, have any particular type of tracker funds that you'd suggest? Because obviously there's, there's various different types tracking different markets and there's even different structures. I mean, you get exchange-traded funds listed on markets and then you get tracker, open-ended tracker funds. So, I mean, there's, again, a massive choice out there. Yeah, again, to me, the industry is about getting my client to market in the most financially efficient way possible. And the traditional industry plays on fund versus fund, company versus company. But to me, it's all about financial philosophy. And I'm quite a fan of Bogle. I'm quite a fan of Buffett, who um, supports Bogle. And I'm also a fan of Farmer, who um, is a buy and hold strategist. Um, so to me, it's not necessarily about which company. It's about having a philosophy to invest and diversifying sufficiently around the world to make sure that you get the best of all markets. Okay. But when you say doing this and you're um, on your fund platform trying to pick a, an ETF or a tracker fund, I mean, which one, you know, which, which ones should you go which to? Which companies? Yeah, because yeah. there's obviously, you know, there's going to be like a, a load of ones tracking the S&P 500 and FTSE Allshire indices, for example. Yeah, well, I invest on global capitalisation. So, for example, when I create my portfolios, I wouldn't have more than 6% of my portfolio in the UK. That's all the UK holds, it's global uh, monies. So I make sure that my portfolios are spread um, dependent on how much money in the world each co country or area holds. Um, and I would, at the moment, I would use um, the Vanguard funds for my trackers purely because my research has suggested that these constantly fit within the risk and cost 
of my um, philosophy for my clients. Okay. Now, are any downsides to investing in tracker funds? Um, well, the advocates of the active industry will say they're um, the expense for the fund entering and leaving the index. Uh, and this is probably true. However, most active fund managers and most portfolios I review, um, sometimes their trading costs are actually more than their annual management fees. So it's, it's really taken a balance. Again, it's the more time the money's touched, the less the client gets back. So I'm quite happy um, taking the, the view that tracker funds are very effective. Now, a lot of our listeners actually enjoy active investing, picking out particular shares and funds. I mean, should they totally give up on this? No, I think anything. Um, investing is different to gambling. Um, when you buy an individual stock or fund in singularity, it's either going up or it's going down. To me, that's like horse racing. Is it going to win or isn't it? So as the majority of human beings enjoy that gambling trip, that's great. I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say um, a retail investor looking for long-term pension planning should take that uh, route. But if there's a little bit they can afford to lose, then it must be great fun doing it. With that in mind, you know, maybe don't want to gamble. They still want, you know, to do some active selection. What if they drip fed their money into the market, for example, investing a set amount into selected investments each month? Um, what some people called pound cost averaging. Is that a good strategy? Because I suppose it takes emotion out because, you, you know, regardless of what happens, you, you've got your asset allocation, you put a bit in each month and it's kind of a mechanical sort of exercise yeah, it depends if you take the view whether markets are efficient or not. Um, when we spoke earlier about the amount of money and trades happening every single day, um, it's very difficult to actually predict what's going to happen. We also take the view that the markets are efficient. They might not always necessarily be right, but we're looking at the long-term view, perhaps 10, 15, 20 years, trying to pick the best time to go into the market or not to me it just doesn't work the markets are random all markets are random we don't know what's going to happen and i think pound cost averaging is is excellent way of doing it for regular investing i think again if you have a lump sum to invest um putting it in all in on a day markets could rise massively as they did with the brexit situation uh people would lose out so again it's down to gambling so it's all about the philosophy at the time of investing. If it's long term, just get in the market, ride it out. A lot of the problems we've been talking about seem to be partly a result of people constantly watching the value of investments, fiddling over trading, messing about. Would it be better if people monitored their investments less often? I wish so, yes. Um, I think it goes back to our weight analogy. If you've got a target to meet in the short term, do you jump on the scales every day? Do you check it? that might work. But if it's a long-term strategy, um, I think it can only sort of um, get the blood pressure up watching it go down over a short period of time. You know, I do it because it's my job to do it. But I've got a couple of interesting analogies on this. Uh, I've got one client who actually decided that after the stock market crash of 08, um, didn't want to get into the market. He felt the markets were going up, going up too quickly. They were going to come down again. Um, regrettably, still in cash, still not being able to take that leap. Although, like you've just mentioned, I'm slowly dripping him back into the market. The last one I had was with Brexit. 
where I had two clients absolutely adamant that their money was going to go down, uh, pulled out on the market into cash, and we've seen 9% returns over the last three years per year. Uh, they've missed out. They're still in cash, still worried about getting back into a market. So I don't think it works. Okay, so how often should you review your portfolio? Well, in the old days, what I call the old traditional financial services days, um, companies used to send out six monthly or annual statements. Clients seem to be quite happy with this. Very rarely did we get people saying, oh, how's my money going? But today's technology, investors can view 24-7 on their platforms, on their mobiles. Um, so as cultures, economies, technologies change, I think people's thoughts are changing. They want access. They want to see the transparency. They want to see how things are doing. And I think this will become the norm over the next few years. But bottom line is, if investors are looking at a 20-year term, then that's what they should be taken a view on. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you, Hannah. Some really helpful tips on how to avoid buying high and selling low. If you're looking to preserve wealth, you may well have invested in some targeted absolute return funds. Many of these aim to make positive returns in all conditions across a specified time period, for example, one or three years. The problem is, many of these have failed to deliver on their stated aims. But Emma, you've been speaking to the manager of a fund which has delivered on its aims. Which fund is this? That's right, Lee Laura. I was speaking to Nick Osborne, who runs BlackRock UK Absolute Alpha, and it aims to make positive returns in each of the past 12 months. And it's actually succeeded in doing that in each of the past five years. How has BlackRock UK Absolute Alpha, unlike some of its sector peers, managed to make positive returns in each of the past five years? Well, its manager says it's down to the fund's ability to both invest in stocks, where he thinks the price will go up, and also short stocks, i.e. profit from stocks that he thinks will, the share price will go down. What exactly is shorting? Yeah, so um, shorting is basically the ability to profit um, when a company's share price falls. And in order to take a short position, this fund uses a contract for difference. And this allows it to benefit from the sale of a share of the company um, that the fund doesn't actually own with the aim of buying it back later at a lower price at a profit. So it's a bit complicated, but I mean, yeah. basically um, it's a way in which um, fund managers can profit from if a company's share price falls. Okay, and um, what types of security does BlackRock UK Absolute Alpha take short positions on? Yes, I mean, um, because obviously you've got to switch your the way in which you think about investing in the company. Normally you'd be thinking about a company's share price rising, but when you're shorting a stock, you're trying to find companies where the share price looks like it's likely to do worse than the market expects. And the manager looks for um, companies where the company hasn't invested enough in its operations or it's in a sector which is structurally challenged and therefore he thinks it's more likely to do worse in the long run. Nick Osborne, does he just short shares or does he do bonds and other types of investments? It's just equities and he shorts as well as um, invest in in companies where he thinks the share price will go up. So the, the fund runs a long short strategy. Okay. Now, what are the benefits of this? Well, the benefits are that um, if the share price if share prices are falling, then the fund can make profit. The thing with um, long only funds, funds that just invest in companies where the price is looking for the price to um, to go up, 
is if the markets fall or the companies fall, they're going to lose money. But the good thing about a fund that can short is that they have the ability to potentially profit in falling markets as well as rising markets. And um, they've actually got less exposure to the general movement of markets as a result of the difference between how their long positions do and how their short positions do. Um, so just to give an example to make it, you know, might, which might bring it out a bit, um, in 2008, when everybody knows the markets were in free fall and the FTSE all share fell 30%, um, because this fund had lots of short positions, it actually profited. And as a result, it made 1.5% over that period, even though the market as a whole had fallen. I mean, that all sounds good, but presumably there's some sort of risks to shorting? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, with everything in investment, there are always risks. And the risks of shorting are if the manager makes a mistake, um, you've got kind of double whammy because on the one hand, you've outlaid money to, to make this short position. And if you make the mistake, you've lost money on that. And at the same time, the share price of the stock that you thought was going to fall has actually risen. Um and to close the short position, you need to buy that back um, at a higher price. So the short answer is that you get double whammy if you make a mistake. OK, that's not good at all. Now, um, does Nick Osborne think there's a particular need to short securities at the moment? Or is he more focused on investing in equities? Yeah, I mean, I think shorting remains a core part of a fund's investment strategy. Um, so he's always going to be looking for opportunities to both short as well as to um, you know, find companies that he thinks would do well. But he says that there are a number of global macro risks which make the hard market hard to call at the moment. For example, you know, he's a bit worried about um, the prospect of a worsening trade war and of global inflation picking up and potentially leading to you know, interest rates in the US in particular rising faster than expected. Um, and he thinks that could have... If that did happen, that might have a negative knock-on impact in bond markets and that would make it harder for companies to access credit. So, yeah, he, he does see a lot of risk around the moment. OK, so what short positions does BlackRock UK Absolute Alpha Fund currently have? Well, he's finding quite a few opportunities in high street retail companies because, um, remember, he you know he's interested in, in areas where companies are in structurally challenged markets and with the growth of online retail high street companies are finding it harder so he's finding lots of opportunities there and in particularly in companies that don't have a good online presence. Hannah do you think absolute return funds are a good way for investors to mitigate downside in their portfolios? No. Okay that's that's a view of a lot of people so so, why? Uh, My first thought is perhaps Institutional investors, it may form part of their investment philosophy for short term, uh, perhaps short term on pension funds. My first thought for retail investors is I believe investors should know exactly where their money is, where in the world it is and be efficient and transparent. That's what I totally believe. Are they transparent? No. Are they financially efficient? No. Do we know where their money is invested? No, what the total costs and the impact, so, so no. Um, we then have to look that they're supposed to get a positive return in all market conditions. And, you know, as Emma said, that can be quite rare. You know, it's nice to hear a positive story. Um, but if we look around from 2009, 
not many funds, absolute return funds, um, have done that well. Many have started in 2014. So they're all in positive markets. You would expect a good positive return, especially, um, for example, Emma mentioned 100% equity bias. So if you're looking from, say, 2009 till now, um, I recently reviewed um, a client's SIP with three absolute return funds in with small amounts of money, in which case you think, well, why are they there? And for a £10,000 investment over that period, it made about £2,200. Uh, another made £5,000 and another made seven. So these are our inequity-based um, absolute return funds. A low-risk fund without any equity made six and a half thousand so um and with 20 percent equity made 19,000 um 100 percent equity made 32 so i think if we're building investment portfolios for the retail investor there are for more financially efficient and better ways of mitigating risk than buying funds that actually you have no idea no control over Okay, could you elaborate a bit on like some of his alternative ways to mitigate downside in your portfolio um, using investments other than absolute return funds? Well, one one can use cash, one can use um, gilts, one can use, um, if you really want to be safe, you can uh, use national savings. There are lots of ways to mitigate risk. Again, it's down to when a, an investor actually creates their portfolio it's looking at the um, capacity for loss so that is the most important thing um, over the longer term so to me building a portfolio um, with bonds and gilts you actually know what you're getting you know how much it's costing you you can project ahead we can see what the returns are um, the problem i find with absolute return funds is that they've got high charges um there's easily achievable um, performance fees, which perhaps the managers might disagree with. Um, they're complex. And to me, the majority don't perform. So how do you pick a perfect fund? So again, it goes back to gambling. Okay. Now, will there actually be a particular need to mitigate downsides in the near future? Do you think markets are set up for a fall? Um, this goes back to my story with media. Um bad news sells. <laughs> so um, I, I think if you take my client's view that in 2009, they're expecting a fall. In 2013, they're expecting a fall. In um, Brexit, they're expecting a fall. To me, the markets know what's going on on a day-by-day -day basis. The managers are clever people. The industry's got full of clever people. They build in they know what the strategies are. Um, yes, you're going to get fluctuations, which are human instincts that when markets fall, which they will do um, over time. But if we go back to the early days of keeping records, we can see with all the wars, with all the problems, the oil crisis, the strikes, eventually the returns come back. And it's taken that longer term view. Why am I investing? Have I got control of my money um, and what am I expecting at the end of the day? Thank you, Hannah. Some really helpful suggestions. That brings us to the end of today's show, but you can read more on absolute return funds and investment strategies in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. <laughs>